Today's Old Testament reading is from Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth and in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things, and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, the breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And for every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, for every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The word of the Lord. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have become vile in their doings. There is none that goes good. 
The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any who would understand and seek after God. They have all gone astray. Have they no knowledge, all those workers of evil, who eat up my people as bread and call not upon the Lord? Though you have made a mockery of the counsel of the poor, yet they put their trust in the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Today's New Testament reading will be from Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to satisfaction and to its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson this morning is from Luke, chapter 17, verses 20 through 27. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the sons of man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. If you have a Bible with you, take it out and turn to Genesis chapter 6, just a couple pages into the very first book of the Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible today and you'd like to follow along with one, there are blue Bibles on the table in the back. And if you don't own a Bible and would like one, then one of those blue ones is yours to keep. This is the story of Noah's Ark. In terms of Bible stories that have made their way into popular culture, Noah's Ark is probably like either one or two. It's either David and Goliath or Noah and the Ark in terms of stories that at least most people have heard of. But like with every other narrative in the Bible, if you read it out of context, 
you end up with a really small and unclear version of what the story is. You end up with this kind of Dr. Doolittle picture of all these animals marching two by two into the ark, and it kind of looks like the beginning of the Lion King, and it's all very lovely. But when you read the whole story, starting at the beginning of Genesis 6, and when you've read everything that comes up to this in Genesis 1 through 5, it sounds a lot less sanitized and cute. Keep in mind that this story really starts to bring into focus the, the, the two ideas that I've been talking about in the last couple of weeks about how Genesis kind of divides people up into this idea of the offspring of the woman that was mentioned in Genesis 3 and the offspring of the serpent. These two lines of people that are kind of traced in parallel. Basically, people that desire to follow God and people that actively desire to not follow God. People that are, are yeah. So, people that desire to follow God and people that, de that desire to not follow God. And the interesting thing is, for the rest of Genesis, we're going to be tracing these two lines, the, line, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the serpent. But every time we focus on one of the offspring of the woman, even though these are the people who desire to follow God, the people who are seen as righteous, every single time we focus in on one of them, we end up seeing just what absolute hot messes they are. Because they just, they just do sinful, evil, wicked things, even though God is lavishing his love on them. But there's a lot in the Noah's Ark narrative that can actually divert us from the whole point of the story. And so we, I, I want to deal with a couple of those things first. Um, here's a good rule of thumb when you read the Bible. This is, a lot of different people have said this, but this is from a, uh, this is from a pastor and a writer named Alistair Begg. And, and he says it very, very clearly. Um, when you're reading the Bible, you're going to occasionally get tripped up on things. But in God's providence, when he was inspiring the Bible, main things are plain things, and plain things are main things. And so when you read through the story of Noah and the ark, you can get really tripped up on things, but they are always small little extraneous things. The point of this is clear and plain, and we'll get to that. But I just want to deal with a couple of these little stumbling blocks first. So this is one of those areas where Genesis just kind of states something without really explaining it, and it can lead to confusion. So, starting in verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Already I'm confused. And they took as their wives, they took as their wives any as they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days will be 120 years. All right, so right there, that's, that's something that people are confused about. This either means that God was going to limit the lifespan of people to only 120 years, which in the previous chapter, we saw that people were living for like 900 years. So it either means that, that he was at this time choosing to limit the lifespan of, of mankind to 120 years, or it means that he was going to let, let this wickedness go on for another 120 years, and then he was going to bring the flood. Either one of those is totally valid, and it doesn't really matter which one it is. But that's something that people get tripped up on. So, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of man came, I'm sorry, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. What? This opening to Genesis 6 is very puzzling. And, and 
Uh, John Goldengay, who together with uh, a guy named N.T. Wright have done a, a really nice new translation of the Bible, John Goldengay says there is nothing else quite like this passage in all of Scripture. This might be the most puzzling passage in all of Genesis, and it probably was puzzling to the, uh, to the Israelites as well. When I was telling Elizabeth this week that I was going to be preaching on the Nephilim, she got all excited. Um, well, she's going to get upset because I don't have any concrete answers for who these people were and what they did. And the answer that I come up with is not necessarily going to satisfy people. And again, this is not the main point of this passage. So we're just going to deal with this briefly. Some interpretations say that the Nephilim were literal giants. Some say that they were the offspring of fallen angels and human women. The word Nephilim means the fallen ones, as far as we can tell. So that kind of makes sense. Some interpretations say that these were just wicked and powerful men who prospered and had risen to the status of kings, because other places in the Bible, kings are called the son of God. Now, I don't know what the Nephilim at the beginning of Genesis 6 are, but I can tell you what I think. I don't think that it has anything to do with fallen angels having sex with human women and having some sort of giant offspring. I just don't. Um, there's a school of thought that says that if you look at the overarching structure of the story so far, we've seen the plan of God and the plan of man. We've seen the actions of God and the actions of man. And so there's this contrast between the things of God and the things of man. Abel brought a pleasing sacrifice to God. Cain didn't, and he murdered his brother as a result of it. God built for his people a garden. Cain ended up building a city and naming it for his son. And the last offspring in that line of Cain, Lamech, wrote a whole poem about how wicked and evil he was. So there's a big dichotomy between kind of this path of man and the path of God. So here's what I think at the beginning of Genesis 6. The sons of God and the daughters of man is kind of that same context or that same contrast. I think that the sons of God was probably referring to the, the Seth line that's traced down all the way through Noah. And the daughters of man was referring to the, the Cain line, the, the offspring of the serpent. And so I think this is what happens when people who are seeking to follow God look out at the world and they see people that are also desirable, and they go and intermarry, which God in the Old Testament says is a very bad thing. But anyway, again, I don't think it necessarily matters who exactly these Nephilim were, and it's easy to get tripped up on that. But main things are plain things, and here we get to the plainest and main part of the passage. In verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually for evil. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then we get another one of these, these are the generations of stories. And that tells us that it's moving from one part of the narrative to another. So we've had this huge genealogy in the last chapter. And now we're going to laser focus in on Noah. The time he was living in was worse than any other time on the earth. It's tempting for us today, just as it's probably tempting for any generation ever, to look around and say, wow, things today just seem out of control. And I mean, if you 
You can listen to any true crime podcast or do five minutes worth of searching, five minutes, five seconds worth of searching on Wikipedia or a news site. And you can see how utterly wicked the people of our day can be. But the thing is, however bad you think the world is today, in the days of Noah, it was worse. The wickedness that ran rampant across the face of the earth was unseen previously or since. And this grieved the Lord. It grieved the Lord. And it says that he regretted making mankind on the earth. Now, I think that when, when God inspired the Bible, he communicates things about himself in a way that we can understand. Because if we ever actually saw inside the mind of the creator God of the universe, it would literally make our heads explode because we can't understand it. The gap between who we are as creatures and who he is as a creator is so vast. And so I think sometimes there's a little bit of metaphor or poetic license used because in order for God to actually regret something in kind of a oops, my bad kind of way, it would mean that he didn't see what was going to happen. And if God can't see the future, then this is not a God that is in any way worth praying to because then he's no better than any of us. But when it says that God regretted it, I think it, re it, it means he's, he's showing us that it grieved him just how far his people had fallen, even though he knew this was going to happen. But we believe in a God who is sovereign over all of creation. We believe in a God who spoke being out of nothing. And we believe in a God who is powerful to do as he wills. And so he decided that he was going to do something about it. Verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. God was going to start over. He was going to unmake creation and then remake creation. Remember in the, in the creation story, in the six days of creation, in terms of the animals, what came first? Birds came first, and then creeping things, and then came animals, and then last came man. And what did, what did God say after he created all of this? He said that it was very good. And now, now things are very bad. And so he says that he's going to start to unwind everything. The last thing God made was mankind. But what does verse 7 say? He starts by saying, I'm going to blot out mankind. And then moving backwards. I'm going to blot out mankind and animals and creeping things and birds. So God is decreating and then he's going to recreate. The very first thing created on the earth was water. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of it. So first there was water, and then the dry land came. And this Noah story is going to be water coming and cleansing everything first, and then the dry land comes. Now, I also want to mention this in terms of this Noah story. This is a sticking point for non-Christians, and it's a sticking point for Christians too, because if you don't hear this, and if we're, if we're afraid to engage with this, then eventually someone's going to tell you about it, and it's going to be... It, it's, it's going to make you question whether this stuff is real. So, there are dozens in the ancient Near East, in the setting that, that, this, that, that Israel is in, in the ancient Near East, there are literally dozens of narratives from other cultures about this flood that covered the face of the earth. Dozens of them. And sometimes people freak out when they hear this because it makes it sound like like Christianity, which came from Judaism, it makes it sound like Judaism is just one weird tribal religion among a whole bunch of other weird tribal religions. And for some reason, dumb luck, 
This, this one called Judaism was the one that stuck while the other ones all fell away. The best known one among all these other flood narratives is called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And there are some details that are common among, among the stories. Wickedness is spreading over the face of the earth. There is a huge flood that comes to wipe everyone out except for one chosen family and they start over. So how can we hear that? How can we hear that this is, is just one story out of many? How do we reconcile the idea that, that the Bible is actually God's inspired word to his people and not just a retelling of a story that they heard from, from one of their neighbors? But I actually think that when we know this, it actually lends more credence to it because if everybody from a region has their own version of this thing that happened, it's probably much more likely that this thing actually happened. And while currently the oldest record that we have of the Bible is newer than the oldest record that we have of something like the Epic of Gilgamesh, there's nothing to say that, that there isn't an older biblical record out there and that Gilgamesh borrowed from the Bible rather than vice versa. So anyway, God is going to, as he says, unmake and then remake creation. And he's going to pick out for himself another Adam, Noah, and his family. And God tells Noah to build a, a transport, a carrier. It says it's an ark, but that doesn't mean boat. It means like a, it's probably a loan word from, from Egyptian, and it means like a box or a chest or a coffin. And this box that God told Noah to build was big. It was over one and a half football fields long, it was taller than a four-story building, and it was wider than it was tall. Now, there's some dispute that these measurements might actually be wrong, but the dispute is that it might actually have been bigger than that. It's a good possibility that this boat, this ark, this chest or coffin, was actually the size of a modern aircraft carrier. In any, in any event, it was big. And every single thing, this is where we start to see what the key to this passage is, Everything that went into this ark was going to be protected from death. Everything that went into this box that God had told him to build was going to be protected from God's righteous judgment against wickedness and evil. If you see this passage as a cute Sunday school story about a bunch of animals walking up a gangplank, you miss why all of this is happening. This is happening because God is a God of justice. I want to talk for a minute about God's justice. Earlier this week, I drove past a sign in someone's yard, and the sign said simply this. <clears throat> it said, the wages of sin is death. When I was a younger man and an unbeliever, I would have seen that, and I would have just shaken my head and said, okay, good, there's, there's those closed-minded Christians screaming about other people's sin and hell and damnation. What a what a stupid religion. But now I've actually read the Bible. And now because I've read the Bible and because I know what a complete sentence is, when I drove past that sign, I was angry. And I, it was hard for me to not pull my car over and either get some paint or go knock on the person's door and say, you need to fix this. Because the sign that read the wages of sin is death is the most incomplete statement that a Christian could ever make to anyone. The wages of sin is death. Yes, that's true. Anybody would affirm that. You could also say that the, when you think about wages, think about it in terms of, of salary or compensation, something that you earn for the work that you've done. 
The wages of sin is death. When I go do a job, someone doesn't just magically give me money as a gift. I have to earn it. I have to do something for it. And so each and every single one of us have sinned, and the compensation that we earn for that sin is death. I have earned my wages. Yes, the wages of sin is death, each and every sin, not just the big ones. The Bible makes it clear that some sins are actually worse than others. We know that because of how those sins were punished in the Mosaic Law. But each and every sin that we do is a cosmic affront to God. The wages of sin is death, but that is not the end of the sentence. What it says in Romans 6 is the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You cannot be given wages for free. You have to earn them by your actions. But you can't earn a gift. Nobody is entitled to receive a gift. It's something that is given to you. What did the poor people of Noah's day do to earn the wrath that God had brought on them? Well, they were sinning. They were sinning. They were wicked. They were terrible. They did plenty to earn their, their judgment. But it's the same thing that you and I do. Yes, some sins are worse than others. But every sin, no matter how trivial it is, is a, is a cosmic tearing of the fabric of the way that God calls us to live. So what did the people in Noah's day do to earn their wages? Plenty. What do any of us do to earn God's righteous judgment against us? Plenty. All of us. Every day. However, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. God is a God of perfect justice. This is upsetting to us sometimes. Sometimes it strikes us as unfair, even though it's literally the most fair thing in the world. And so justice, God's justice would tell us that we all should end up like the people in Noah's day who weren't Noah and his family because the wages of sin is death. But because God was gracious to Noah, because God gave this gift to Noah, they were spared. God chose them and they lived. Because of this, this ark, this chest or coffin, they escaped God's justice because he granted them mercy and because he gave them grace. Noah wasn't perfect. Now, it says that he was blameless. In verse 9, it says he was blameless in his generation. Yes, because he was, because he was a person of integrity, because he, was a, he desired to follow God. He was a God-fearer, someone who, who would willfully turn from evil. But that doesn't mean he was sinless. He was just like you and me. But we know that Noah sinned because, well, firstly, if you've read into Genesis 9, you know that Noah really sinned. But we know that Noah sinned because there's only ever been one perfect being and, that, and one perfect human being, and his name wasn't Noah. So God showed grace to this sinner by saving him and his family. He gave him, he gave him specifications for a, a refuge to keep him safe from his justice. The word for ark, it's only used two other times in the Bible. One is for the ark of the covenant, a chest or a container that was meant to keep something incredibly important safe inside of it. The, the, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments and a bowl of manna and Aaron's staff. These were the sacred relics of God providing for his people and shepherding his people. And they were kept safe in this Ark of the Covenant. And it's also, the word for Ark is used at the beginning of Exodus. When little baby Moses 
gets put in, it says in our Bible, it says it got, he got put in a basket of bulrushes. But what it really says is he got put in an ark of bulrushes. It was made to keep him safe from the judgment of Pharaoh. The same with, with Noah's ark. God graciously gives Noah the plans for this box, for this container that's going to keep him safe from God's perfect, righteous judgment. This chest to safeguard its contents as the rain bore down on it and as the floodwaters rose up around it, but yet the ark floated and stayed dry. This is a, a foreshadowing or a hint about the true ark that is to come, the one who was going to take all of God's judgment but keep whoever was inside of it safe. Or as, as Paul often says, for those of us who are in Christ, we are safe from the wrath of God. Jesus is the one that the ark points to. He is the one that we get to enter into. He is the one on whom God's justice is meted out in our place. If God just set aside his justice, if he just had somebody in the courtroom who confessed to murder, he said, I killed a guy, and God said, well, you seem like a nice enough guy, just don't do it again. If God set aside his justice, he wouldn't be just at all. Punishment has to be made for sin. But the punishment that was made in our place was taken on by Christ, who is our true ark. The wages of sin is death, that is true, but that is such an incomplete statement. Because the good news, the gospel, is that the wages of sin is death, but God is offering this free gift to you of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And the more we recognize the gravity of our own sin, not just looking to others and what they're doing, but the more we see the gravity of our own sin, the more we recognize the enormity of the salvation that we have through Jesus. And so this beginning passage, it's going to take us at least two sermons and maybe three to get through all of Noah's Ark because it's a huge story. But the start of this is really about God's justice and how he was so grieved by the wickedness that was on earth that he had to do something about it. It's a story of God's justice, but it's also a picture of God's grace and his mercy that he shows to anyone who wants to come inside this ark. And that ark is Christ. And it's the free gift of eternal life that we are given through him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.